In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. In our last episode, we welcomed Dr. Rizwan Ahmad into the studio to share his experiences working with adolescents. In this episode, you will hear part two of that discussion where Dr. Ahmad shares examples of struggles early in his career, the need for clinical training, and how we at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health are incorporating new training methods into our skills training program. If you haven't listened to part one in episode 19, I highly encourage you to go back and listen. Here's part two with Dr. Ahmad. Enjoy. Trust the science. So, um, we had a we had a podcast where we were talking about biases, right? Mm. And uh, you know, one of the one of the uh, messages was around that authority bias. When you start digging deep into um, like how medical professionals have been trained uh, about mental health related issues, how much that was driven by pharmaceutical. Um, uh, pharmaceutical marketing and uh, ghost writing and putting academics on the, on the payroll and their influence in the development of textbooks. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a type of person, you know, Sean, Sean knows me well, I think Riz, you do as well. I, you know, I always want to know the why, I mean, the idea of just doing something because I was told or just doing something because it's the way we've always done it, you know, is an enemy of progress. And, you know, I've had so many conversations with, uh, you know, various medical professionals about the why they're doing what they're doing and then like the questions that follow. And, you know, the, I really come to the conclusion that the reason that they're doing it is because that's what they were told. You know, that's how they were trained. Um, you know, I don't even know how, I don't think that they're really actually evaluating the literature. One, I don't think they have time. Um, you know, I think it's an overwhelmed system and the way that it's set up is not really, um, it doesn't really allow for, you know, continued learning. And the learning that is set up, you find out it tends to be seat, uh, continuing educa- education, like conferences and so forth, sponsored by Pfizer. You know, it's like that's kind of like the, the education that we're starting to see and their foothold on, you know, American society is just becoming greater and greater and greater. And so like we have, I think we have a responsibility as compassionate science-driven professionals that we have to ask the questions, we got to analyze, we got to understand, and we have to, have to have the ability to like talk about research findings in a more sophisticated way. Um, so people understand the limitations of them. And I hope we're trying to do that here at our center. Um, I want to transition the talk into the train into training and what is the future. There will be people who listen to this podcast who might be interested in joining our postdoctoral residency program or want to join the movement. You know, the movement that we're going to develop as a center, which is to to grow and to change the paradigm of of care. Um, how what's your role in in this movement? 
And how are we going to train the next generation of mental health clinicians? Um, and what's the future? Mm-hmm. So um, maybe before we get into the future, can I say a little bit about the, the past and sure. present that I experienced with this? Yeah. So um, the, the idea of treatment as usual or, or uh, training as usual. I think that there are multiple factors we've talked about to this point that have an influence, right? We've talked about the role of uh, pharmaceuticals in driving the process. Talked about if people are uncertain about what's going on, then anyone's going to be pulled towards trying to come up with an explanation. And sometimes those explanations are circular and it's just diagnoses. When I entered into uh, graduate school training, this was uh, to become a psychologist. The focus wasn't on pharmaceuticals, right? And even in our classes, the focus wasn't extensively on diagnoses. Uh, and I like to consider myself, you know, a hard worker. I think I did all the reading and everything like that and did everything that was asked of me in graduate school. But still came out of it a terrible <laughs> therapist <laughs> in my first year here as a postdoc. Uh, and you kind terrible? of... Terrible? Sh- terrible. Roger, would you agree with terrible or on par? No, he was a great guy um, who I... I I thought wasn't provided the uh, the training and opportunities to be able to take that talent and really you know make it into you know change in the room. But but isn't that most careers and most professions that um, those skills are developed and honed over time? No, I, I, I think it, I think what we do here in one year and how measurable it is, uh, it's different. Yeah, I I, I I agree with I agree with that, and uh, maybe I asked the question wrong. But like if if uh, I go to school. We don't have I that. Get, I get a degree. I know. I know your question. I'll yeah. answer it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I, I was just in a recent workshop, and you know, there's data on this. Mm-hmm. The longer you become a therapist, doesn't correlate with improved outcomes. All right, you answered the question. Got it. Yeah. Even uh, some people get worse <laughs> the longer they've been a therapist. You just can get cemented in bad habits if mm-hmm. you're not approaching in a certain way. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I say terrible, it was pretty terrible, <laughs> and. And it may have been on par, which mm-hmm. is kind of the scary thing. It was treatment it. as usual. It was. Can I mean, we can say what those statistics were. Do you remember what they were, what your, your positive outcome I rate do. was? I do. I'm pretty sure it was something like 37%. Oh, okay. <laughs> Three Jeez. or four out of even every Riz, 10 people even, got even I better. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. But, yeah. but to be honest, that is on par with clinical outcomes in, in community-based settings. So when you ask your question, that's on par. Yeah, but that's going to be typical unless something changes. About a third of people dropping out early, which is the norm in community mental health mm-hmm. as well, in the first few sessions. So very much on par, frighteningly. <laughs> and yeah, well, it was, the, the follow-up question would be where you're yeah. at now, because I think that's, that's important to understand. Do you, do you, have you done your outcomes for this year? Um, I know you guys are going to get together in, in like January or February and, and review stuff. Yeah, I'm coming up for this year. Last year is the last one I have, and I believe that one was at 71% for where it is. Fantastic. Um, so it's been, you know, every year this progression um, and, you know, periods of jumps and periods of kind of slow gradual growth. But uh, trust the process was something Roger said in the beginning, and it's something that uh, now there's that confidence in because you can see those results over time. Mm-hmm. Early on, uh, it was honestly points at which I was questioning whether or not mental health treatment even worked, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, whether I was capable of providing mental health treatment. Uh, just just doubts all, all over the board. Mm-hmm. And when I look back on it, I think part of it is 
part of it is training as usual doesn't fully prepare you to do work in the way it needs to be to be done. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm a positive person. I do think it's good intentions going in from people who are doing the teaching and training. It's just following older models of how to do that that we're looking to build off and do something different. And context-wise, psychology is not that old. You know, we're what? Infancies. (laughs) Infancy stages. I mean, Beck was like 60s. You know, that's like 50 years. So to, to say we absolutely know how to train clinicians... Uh, is bogus. Even if we have the research, we may not have research how to train people how to use it to help someone in the room. And that's different than other fields. I mean, medicine has been around a long time. Musicians have been around a long time. They have like thousands of years Mm -hmm. of knowledge of practices that help people become better at that. So training as usual, I think in, in whether it's someone looking for like a master's degree and obtaining graduate level Uh, or someone going for a doctorate, usually I think includes some core components. Uh, One is usually classroom learning. So classroom learning, which uh, in my training was usually a lot of philosophical discussions, discussions about different theories, uh, a lot of reading, a lot of smart people, academics, intellectual discussions. There there was a lot of that, some of which was helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of those curriculum are kind of governed by... uh, bigger bodies like the American Psychological Association. So you'll have a human development course. You'll have a course in child and adolescent psychopathology, things like that. That's kind of the set um, curriculum. Beyond that, the idea in my school was the clinical exposure you'll get when you go to rotations and you do rotations every year in in, um, my school. And it was almost this idea that if you go out there and you're exposed to as many clinical situations, as many clients as possible, uh, you'll just naturally get good and get better at it. Like, we'll throw you in the pool, you'll learn how to swim, and you'll become a better swimmer. Hmm. (laughs) Which I think is the first big flaw (laughs) in training. If you're swimming, you get direct feedback on whether you're swimming or you're drowning. (laughs) 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 It happens pretty quickly. In in my clinical rotations, I had so many experiences where I was thrown in and I didn't know whether I was doing well, doing poorly. Didn't know what doing well looked like. Hadn't, didn't have any ideas about what would be steps along the way to see how I was doing. Client outcomes weren't even taken. Uh, I, I remember in my, in my first year, my rotation was uh, working at this like step-down facility for men who had had really positive behavior in jail, were behaving well. And so they were allowed to be at this place, go out in the community to work, come back, and they were soon going to finish their sentences and re-enter society. It was like a transition point. Mm-hmm. And my very first day there at, at that uh, placement, they had me lead a group by myself. Wow. Group of 50 men. Way too big a group. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and they gave me kind of like handouts to read off of to this group of men who are like 20 years older than me, have experienced life, are kind of hardened, you know, kind of, you know, are in this facility where they don't really respect the facility at all. And them putting me in that position, I'm like, I wouldn't respect the facility at all either myself. That's not even throwing you in a pool. That's dropping you in the (laughs) middle of the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) Shark circling, yes. (laughs) So Pick you up in an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Literally the entire hour of that therapeutic group Mm -hmm. um, was spent with 
the men complaining about the place and what a joke this was, <laughs> <laughs> which I pretty much just allowed to happen, which is probably the smartest thing I did in that hour was keep my <laughs> mouth shut and let them just <laughs> vent about how horrible things were. And here the kicker is I left that and I came back to talk to my supervisor. And I said, that was like a disaster. Like I, I told her what happened, what it was like. I just sat there, just listened to him. And the feedback I got was, it sounds like you handled it really well. And that, that was it. So you treaded water, <laughs> kept your head above, you survived, and you got pulled out yeah. when they came back in an hour. The situation uh, didn't escalate, so therefore you handled it well. <laughs> great, great work, Dr. Riz, right? right. Yeah. No specific feedback for what I was doing, what to do better, what were what was even the competencies that we're aiming for, what what are we actually measuring to see are people improving? So those fifty groups? individuals, what was the key takeaway from the hour session? For them? Yeah. <laughs> what did they learn? <laughs> that this is a joke. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably and, just I mean, that. basically what you're saying, the bar has been really low. Yeah. You know, and, and unfortunately this is this is reality. That the bar in training is really low. And, that, and that's like a, I think everyone's got their horror stories of placements. And mm -hmm. I, I don't want to say that every single one is a horror story. Mm -hmm. So even if we take, um, you know, clinical rotations where I think there was more thought and it was more structured and well-intentioned, uh, at some clinic, I had a placement where I was at like a child and an adolescent clinic. And for that one, uh, you know, we did have meeting with the supervisor once a week. Uh, would talk about cases, would have group meetings where we would talk about cases or talk about various topics. Um, very occasionally, we would listen to like a recording or two <laughs> here or there. Throughout my entire graduate school training, I think that about four recordings were listened to of me actually doing <laughs> therapy mm -hmm. and all of those were audio recordings too there was no video recordings of what i was doing in the room which is crazy yeah yeah <laughs> it's like having a heart surgeon and never actually watching them do surgery well yeah and giving them a license to practice based on what they talk about about what they know about surgery and what they say they're doing in the room and for surgery mm -hmm. i would imagine nonverbal is such a big role of of you as a clinician and then the client observing you as a client. I mean, the yeah. client observing you as a clinician, right? Yeah. That's what that relationship is. Yeah. And, and there are some challenges in our field uh, because of confidentiality and privacy reasons, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the willingness of, of clients to, you know, be recorded. You know, I, I had some better experiences, you know, than Riz in, in my program, which is Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. You know, I say that's because I, I do believe they were innovative in a lot of the things that they did. Is the training clinic on, you know, on campus had, you know, it was set up for video recording. So, like, all my sessions could be observed. We also had standardized patients there. We had outcome measures. So, the, you know, some, yes. of, some of the opportunities that were provided to me there shaped, you know, my professional beliefs about about training and I, and I want to give some you know definitely the professors at that school a lot of credit for you know how they were training clinicians that's great that's great yeah I think that's steps towards the future maybe even ahead of its time yeah but it's it's rare so what you came to us for a postdoctoral residency and um, you know what was your experience and then how have we evolved here yeah, so in, uh, in residency here, 
there were there was a didactic component to it. You know, classes we'd meet together to talk about what we call the case formulation series, and it basically talked about the beginning of treatment to the end of treatment, going through the nitty gritty of doing an intake well from the very beginning. Which, I think, if if we're talking about where where training needs to be. I think we also need is worth talking about where trainees need to be, mm-hmm. which is having realistic expectations. Cause I came into that first year, you know, you're feeling all shiny and new. You got your, you got your doctorate now. So I'm supposed to know everything about everything. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to run an intake evaluation. Well, you know, I had just done what I had done without anybody looking and then talked about what I did. And it wasn't at all fitting with some of the things that we were talking about and the, and the rationale and reasons why. So here it was much more principle-based. It was much more, these are the principles for why you might approach things a certain way. And it's going to teach you how to think rather than what to think and what to say. Um, it's a very different approach. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not scripted in that way. And then you can be a human in the room operating underneath those principles. It's funny how the hardest thing to teach somebody is how to be human, even though we are <laughs> are human, but we feel like as a, a you, you graduate with a, a doctorate and you go start working, you feel like you need to represent yourself a certain way. And then you learn over time that mm, you need to almost dial yourself back and actually be human to be more effective. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's a really common experience in the field to talk about imposter syndrome. Oh yeah. You know, like you're pretending to be somebody else. And I think in the worst ways of interpreting imposter syndrome, you can see it and say, you know, I just got to think about it differently and just, uh, you know, act, act the part and, Mm -hmm. you know, ignore that. Um, and I think that's actually risky to do. (laughs) I I was, um, maybe read it or listened to it. Uh, interviews with most successful CEOs, they all struggled with imposter syndrome. And the way that they responded to it was to study harder, work harder, do more research, right. listen yeah. to experts, and and actually then, you know, continue to learn, not assume that they know everything. Yeah. What if those mo- a moment of imposter syndrome may mean I don't know what I'm doing yeah. right now or I'm not good enough in this moment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a valuable message. Good. Listen to it. You know, pay attention, try something different, learn something different. Yeah. I mean, providing um, mental health treatment, psychotherapy is such a, um, you know, an interesting mix between art and science. So like on, on one end, like we, we have a ethical and professional responsibility to prove what we're doing is actually, you know, it's actually working, right? Like, so, you know, what we've chosen to do as far as, de- as far as developing a treatment plan actually helps the person. And one way that we do that is use of outcome measures and obviously identifying like very clear behavioral goals. But what we've learned here at our center through our outcomes is that's not enough, right? And, uh, you know, the field has developed empirically validated treatments that are manual based. And we've realized that the, the step-by-step manual doesn't solve some of the problems. Yes, it gives us an idea uh, of what are some mechanisms of change that must happen. Like if you if you have a phobia, how do you overcome it? If you have post-traumatic stress, how do you resolve that? If you're really depressed, how do you overcome that episode? You know, how do you treat bulimia? Like, so there's these components in the manual, but we realize like the art around it and the relationship building, the collaboration and the validation were the key ingredients so you can have all the knowledge, you know, of empirically valid treatments without that other 
that skill, um, then you know we would see the outcomes are would be poor. How have you advanced our training? Um, and tell me, you know, how you're currently thinking about training mental health clinicians, and where do we see this going? Sure. So, um, the way I see training now is not too different from the way I would see our clients improving, which is that we teach in CBT that it's about learning skills and different ways to improve upon those skills to get better. Mm -hmm. And then in training, if it's just talked about, how is that actually skills training? You know, there's, there's no homework, there's no practice of it, there's no repeating it, there's no going through the grind of getting better and better at it. And to me, that has to be a key component of, of training. So we still do have... Uh, you know, talking about some of the principles. I think first people need to be exposed to some of these ideas. You know, we need to go against some of the old learning that may not fit as well, break down myths that people might have about how people get better, uh, not fragilizing clients, kind of like core things that, that, you know, we've been talking about a little bit on this podcast. So you, you go against some of those ideas. You let people learn about different concepts and different approaches to things. We have training videos that people can watch on their own, take their own time to do so. We have readings that we recommend. Some of it's research and journal articles. Some of it's books that talk about these topics. But you get exposed to it. You kind of you kind of now experience it at like the head level. So you got it like up to your neck now. You're now full of that information. Mm -hmm. After that, uh, we want people to have the opportunity to see it. So see a clinician doing what they're talking about, which is probably not novel in most fields, but was like a rare occurrence. <laughs> Uh, in, in my in my experience. So, and Roger brought up some of the privacy concerns. How do we overcome that? Yeah. So, seeing it can be done with with actors. Yeah. Um, you know, we're hiring actors to be. Or we have hired actors to be standardized patients. Mm -hmm. A normal practice in medical settings, a rare practice in most training centers, uh, and it. I have a whole bunch of respect for for actors <laughs> because the actors used to be uh, like me when I was doing the training <laughs> and what I, I can't do. I remember the Seinfeld episode where he got syphilis, you know, he had to, you got syphilis. Give me syphilis. Well, we're, we're a little bit of a higher standard. Like we had Leonardo DiCaprio over here playing social anxiety. <laughs> yeah. I, I, they can hit these nonverbals in these subtle ways, you know, it they, was a dark night. <laughs> <laughs> bottle of scotch a <laughs> little bit lonely <laughs> you can tell roger used to be one of the actors He's a little bit better about losing that position uh, <laughs> a lot of internal dialogue <laughs> <laughs> they, they're fantastic i mean they're they're ones where i could record me practicing something with them mm -hmm. put it up on a training video and then i can go through and do things like dub over my thinking at various points throughout that oh, session. Oh, that's fantastic, yeah. And, you know, in that way, it's less likely that people are going to say, this is the right thing to say in this moment, because it's not, but uh, it's more the reasons why and the principles why, and then they can make it their own and find their own style for So it. while you're watching it, um, as I'm uh, a trainee, I'm learning, I don't have to interpret what you were going through at that moment. You're actually explaining what you were identifying, what you were seeing, what was what you were going to try and like uncover or try the path you were going to start going towards. Yeah, I'll be totally transparent about it, especially at clinical decision points. Yeah. Like here I was considering going one of a couple ways and 
here's why I did what I what I did. You know, and, and and honesty about certain ways here, I didn't quite know what was going on when they reacted that way. I just filed that in the back of my mind and kept going, didn't know what to do with it. So it's like when um, everybody used to watch movies on DVD, you'd have the extras and you can listen to the director's commentary <laughs> and you would learn more about the film and you'd be like, oh my God, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Right. That's fascinating. <laughs> right, right, right. Now you're, you're, you're kind of uh, adapting that into this training. Yeah. yeah how, to, how to think like a clinician yeah. is the idea, right? So there's opportunities to do that that I think are pretty novel as a way of doing things. But what it allows people to do is hone in on particular moments and how what they're learning up to their neck applies experientially to that particular moment in the session. Mm -hmm. And that's a different level of learning than, than just talking about what's going on. So, you know, we let people learn about a neck down. We let people see it actually done. And then I want people to do it. You know, and and not just do it, but do it in a way where they're doing it, um, you know, live so they can get feedback on it mm-hmm. with, with maybe a standardized patient actor. Uh, we're pausing. We're giving feedback right away about things that they could do to improve. We're rewinding. <laughs> we're doing it again and, and trying it that way again. They might repeat things six times or eight times. And every time someone repeats it, they may say it subtly a different way. And their nonverbals may shift subtly based on that feedback. Mm-hmm. They're, they're getting better and better at like ironing out the wrinkles. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where simple exposure to doing things doesn't help because if you're in a normal session and you're just doing what you do without that feedback, you would just do that. The moment would pass. You'd move on. And then the next client comes when the similar situation happens and you would do the same thing. And you're just then being exposed to doing the same thing over and over again. There's no learning that happens from it. Yeah. So this is like much more active learning. It's not being a passive learner. Mm-hmm. It's practicing and trying things. And in my mind, I think it's, um, and this fits with like Scott Miller and others who came up with deliberate practice. It's that model of, of learning to this. It fits much more in line with how we learn many other skills. Uh, you know, if you're going to play music or play guitar, you got to practice those chords over and over again. Mm-hmm. They're intellectually so easy. Believe me, I tried learning the guitar <laughs> and I told myself like, oh, you just put your hands, you know, you put your fingers on these chords. Okay. turns out that didn't make me a good guitarist to <laughs> tell myself that <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. You, you do it, you repeat, you get better. It makes me think of Tiger Woods. So Tiger Woods, fantastic golfer, top of his game, uh, was playing the best golf he's ever played in his life would then announce that he's taking four months off to adjust his swing. And everybody would be like, why? You just crushed it out there. You were playing ridiculously well. But for him, it was always like, "Mm, I could always get better. I could always, I need to record things. I need to watch them. I need to make minor adjustments to see if I can keep improving. Is that what you're, you're basically by repeated and repeating and doing things, you're, you're pointing out the subtleties. You're trying to find ways to just get a little bit better. Yeah, and, and isn't it amazing that that never ends? It that, doesn't, yeah. <laughs> that Tiger Woods does that. They even hear about, you know, the number of free throws Jordan would shoot every yeah. day in practice yeah. and yeah. things like that. And as therapists, do we do that? Do we kind of hone in on foundational skills and practice them in an intentional way? You know, it's a, it, that 10,000-hour rule. You know, oh, yeah. like Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell put that. I don't, I don't know how valid that is. But, like, when we talk about you know, experience and expertise, developing expertise in something. I mean, if you're doing 10,000 hours of the wrong thing, you know, like if you're making mistakes 10,000 over 10,000 hours, all you're doing is repeatedly strengthening 
you know, that kind of behavior. So like, if you're going to really learn from ex- experts, and there's, there's an attitude about this and why I think outcomes are so important because, you know, you're getting that feedback. You're learning from everyone that doesn't, you know, kind of make it through that treatment um, and meet their goals. Every single person provides you information. In the typical mental health field where there is no outcome research done, you know, you are prone to, you know, confirmation bias. You know, you, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like um, you talked about that idea of, um, what were you talking about? Where imposter syndrome, right? So a lot depends on the person. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have a 35% treatment outcome, you know, is your mind remembering the 35% that have done well? Um, or are you, you know, thinking about the, you know, 70% or whatever, 65%, 65, I'm bad at math. Sorry. It, was, it was 37%. <laughs> I would like to have my credit 37. Yeah. But there was a, I'll never go back. I, I read this to my staff about probably like five or six years ago. And that's like after we initially did outcomes and I knew, you know, the growth that we needed to make. And I wasn't really certain about that. We had the right people at our center. And um, there was a there was a survey of mental health clinicians. Nine out of ten, you know, ninety percent of everybody. I mean, there were thousands mm-hmm. that were, um, you know, part of this survey. Ninety percent rated themselves in the top ten percent of yeah. effectiveness. Yeah. So, like, you know, I hear that imposter syndrome. I think that's probably, you know, f- for the select few who are very analytical. Um, and they evaluate themselves and they care very much about getting better. Mm-hmm. There's just too many people who just think they're really good when they're not. And this is where having evidence-based practice really matters and it protects the the client. Yeah. And this is this is where you have to go against human nature and why I think training is so interesting from a personal development standpoint. Because you could look at really poor outcomes. And one way of responding to that is find some way to blame it anywhere else that doesn't make me feel bad about it. Mm, You know, like, like it's my clients. They weren't working hard. They weren't motivated enough to make change. I had really tough clients this year. (laughs) Yes, it was just that. Um, Or, you know, you do pay attention to those ones who got better and you you just filter out what you're going to pay attention to and what you're not going to pay attention to. And on the flip end of things, someone might take it to a level where it becomes incapacitating. You know, and that's where we run into therapists who are burning out. Because if you see that, say that 37% is true, uh, the path to burnout is to internalize that as, uh, you know, I'm broken as a therapist. Uh, you know, the, nothing works. This field doesn't work. Everything I do is is wrong. I don't even know how to talk to people. I'm saying this from personal experience at times <laughs> during that year. But if you take it that way, you never learn from anything. You don't hone in on this specific thing is what I was struggling with. This is what I don't know. This is what I need to know. And these professors, some of the professors who are training in master's programs and doctoral programs, I mean, we've had, uh, you know, psychologists at our center at various times who, um, you know, were some of, unfortunately, some of the worst performing therapists as far as outcomes. And now they're out there, they're teaching. So the, the people that are actually teaching therapists how to conduct therapy are ones who might not demonstrate strong outcomes themselves. So it's, it can be the blind leading the blind if you're not careful. It could, yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a role in this discussion right now. From a business standpoint, listen, 
These people went to school. The clinicians went to school. They got an education. The state gave them a license. They are trained professionals. Why on earth are we taking them out of the opportunity to sit down with clients and do sessions to put them through training all over again? Why? As a business model, why would we do that? It, I think um, <laughs> the direct refuting of what you're saying is the clinical outcomes. That's why we do it. It's not a great business model if 37% of the people coming in are getting the service they're looking for. Yeah, so I've had those conversations <laughs> with people. I said, well, what makes us different? What makes this place different from anywhere else? Like, as a person who might be seeking out a therapist, the process is I'll talk to my primary care doctor. I might do some Google searches, you know. And then from a, a clinician standpoint, you know, coming here to work, what are their expectations? You know, what, what based on the experiences that you've had, and then you come here, I would imagine the experience here gives them a sense of confidence that maybe they would not get elsewhere. Am I, am I right or am I wrong in that assumption? I, I would hope people get the same experience it I did. Depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> so, all right. So um, I, I love the fact that we're using <laughs> actors and we're doing those portrayals. Uh-huh. Where do we go next? What's the next evolution? Yeah. So I think that idea of deliberate practice and has to end up being a norm for us where if people do those actor portrayals, for example, and we identify certain things that they're struggling with. So maybe, for example, they're a clinician who, uh, when they're feeling pretty stressed, gets really caught up in their head and then becomes kind of robotic with just saying the things that they feel like they should say, but they've checked out from being present with what's going on. Maybe the skill they need to learn is really being able to observe their own reactions in those, emo- in those moments when their emotions are more intense and stay present and stay in tune with the client. Well, if that's the case, how do we train that? Well, we can teach people ways, like exercises, to practice doing that. Mm-hmm. Like watch recordings, watch video of, of moments and sessions, and stay in tune with the client. Just observe what's going on in your client's nonverbals and verbals over and over. We can do that with, it, with interventions. You know, we can do that with one thing we do in, when we're working to understand the behavior with somebody is something called the chain analysis. It's where you kind of go through a play-by-play of what was happening, what people were thinking, what they were feeling, what, how the environment responded, to like understand why things played out the way they did. May I ask um, for the both of you, are you able to identify at what point you're struggling with something as a clinician? How easy is that? So when you talk about deliberate practice, mm-hmm. I would imagine if Roger were observing you in a session, he may be able to identify where you're struggling. But how do you identify within yourself what you're struggling with? Yeah. I got. To, I have thoughts on this. I mean, I, I, it, it's your client informs you, right? Um, I mean, that's, that's one piece of it, right? Okay. So if, you're, if your client is not responding well to you um, and they're not improving, right, then, um, you know, then you know you're struggling, right? There, there might be a blind spot. There might be something that's missing, I always go first, you know, go to the client. You know, when we talk about a collaborative relationship, it's like, hey, let's put our heads together. Like, um, you know, you're not where you wanted to be. You know, wh- where where are we going wrong together? What can I do to help you? I mean, that 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 is a necessary, you know, skill. Mm-hmm. Because often I think what you find out is conceptualization 
drives treatment. So a real deep understanding of who your client is and everything that leads to them struggling is, you know, when that's off, when you're missing important information and it could be missing important information, one, because of who you are and how you're responding or the questions you're asking. You could also be missing important information because you know they're not ready to inform you of that yet. And it could be a problem in a relationship. So, um, you know, that in itself, you know, tends to inform me where I am at, at, at this level, but also, you know, having consult and being mm. able to kind yeah. of rely on professional kind of support. Uh, we have in dialectical behavior therapy, we have a weekly consult team and that is so helpful to me because, you know, sometimes it's just me saying things out loud and I'm like, Oh, how did I not think about that? <laughs> or other times yeah. it's, you know, it's another clinician saying some things to help you think different or sometimes you're just talking about another case and you're providing them consult and you realize you can apply it to a case where you're struggling i mean that's how i see it what do you think Riz? yeah i think it's a mix of both you know there are times when i can observe my own sessions and i'm observing them in a different way because i'm no longer behind my eyes i'm seeing myself as mm -hmm. well and I'm able to like slow things down and pay attention in ways that just aren't easy to do in real time. So sometimes I can notice things about my own responses where things felt a little rocky there. The, or the way the person looked when I said that seemed to like not really vibe. It didn't seem like it made sense. So I, I got into this habit actually during my postdoc year during imposter syndrome <laughs> times <laughs> at first where after sessions that I thought went poorly, I would kind of sit and journal a little bit about what I thought went poorly, mm -hmm. um, what I think I could have done better, and then what I was going to do to try to do that better. And this is like an added level to that because now with video, it's even more close feedback to that. Mm -hmm. I think the blind spot thing is still a very valid uh, point, mm -hmm. which is relying on others to take a look to and experts to. So I, I love innovations. I'm sorry, Roger, you're going to go somewhere with that. Yeah, I actually wanted to bring up the movie Jerry Maguire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see Jerry Maguire? I'm dating myself here. What are we, late 90s? Tom Cruise? Yes. You know, he was the football agent. You now, there's a point in the movie, I think it uh, really kind of drives the, you know, entire plot. But he, you know, he starts like sweating and he has like a crisis of conscience and mm -hmm. he writes his like manifesto. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately comes down and he says like, less clients more relationships, you yeah, know? Yeah. And then everyone's kind of like standing around and says, oh, he's done, right? Because <laughs> it's this, you know, financially driven model. Um, you know, to be honest, like if you, if, if your caseloads are too large and you don't have enough time for other things in your life, I don't know if you can be present emotionally for people who are in, in pain. And it's like, it's not the best business model, you know, because... Um, if you want to do some things that are like what we're doing, uh, you're not a therapy mill, you know, and a therapy mill and treatment as usual is you're, you're loading kind of these clinicians up with a 40 hour week, you know, they, you know, they might have like 35 therapy slots, you know, 30 to 35 and it becomes this revolving door and clients can't get in. And, you know, so for us, if somebody comes into the center you're committing to an effective course of therapy, which could mean, you know, multiple sessions per week to start. We refuse to do ineffective therapy. And if your clients get better and you have that strong relationship and you don't feel burned out, well, then this, this work is really like invigorating. Yeah. Um, but w if your clients struggle um, and you don't have the skills to be able to work with them and you're overworked, 
you know, that is a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that's where my hopefulness is because I think a lot of therapists who feel burned out or like they're ineffective, I think it's just not knowing what they need to learn to get to a place where they can feel that the feeling they initially went to the field trying to get, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, Roger just reminded me of a story, um, back in June or July, after working here for about three months, I kind of came up to him and I said, hey, listen, I'm struggling with understanding what my role is here. And he looked at me and he said, Sean, you complete me. (laughs) 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 And and in that moment, I never loved him as much as I love him. (laughs) No, serious. So um, so innovations is where I wanted to go. how the feedback from the client and recognizing when you may be struggling in those sessions, how can we continue to evolve where we can make that maybe a little bit easier? I know you have ideas. So I I love verbalizing ideas and putting them out there so that we can try and make them come to reality. Do you want to share some, (laughs) some things on that? Um, And and of course there's things that we'd have to work through, but radically genuine. you're, You're the business guy. You're the marketing guy. Like if this is going to be a movement, you know, you're going to be provided the responsibility to help get that message out there. Well, I'm I'm basically taking my experiences previously and I'm adapting them into this in the industry, into this business that just didn't exist before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is it's very easy for me to do because I'm familiar with it. But I, I just I don't want to make assumptions, you know, because I have done that in, <laughs> and I'm often I, there's a lot more things that I need to be considering. So, so this is my opportunity for like, the wish list to Santa yeah. and I'm putting it on oh, record. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I am, I'm very big into the idea of deliberate practice for learning to grow. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some technologies and things we can do to support that. Uh, there, there's already, uh, you know, a group, it's the international center for excellence, you know, Scott Miller, Tony Romanier, these are names in the field who are, who are looking into this. They, they've designed some ways to do this, and I'll give you an idea of one. Um, I think I sent you guys an email with this with this website called TheraView.com, mm-hmm. View, V-U-E. And basically, it's this platform where you can play a snapshot of an actor acting out a moment in, in a therapy session. And they range from easy, medium, hard. You kind of rate it, you, rain, you change it to scale to your zone of learning which is usually somewhere in the medium range. You know, you don't want to be bored and you don't want to be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. But you can play that. You can see someone responding in a certain way. And these are like, these can be tough clinical moments. This could be someone who's maybe coming in feeling very hopeless and like, uh, you know, they're they're a terrible person. There's no hope for the future. And how do you, how do you respond with that? You know, how do you, what do you do in one of those moments, which may vary based on client and context of what's going on, but at least gives you the opportunity to, practice a little bit about observing your own emotional response to that, being very intentional with your nonverbal and verbal reactions to someone who's, who's feeling that way. And you can, you can repeat that and you can kind of, kind of submit it in for feedback. You can send like your best version of what you think for how to approach this situation and get feedback on that. I've shifted into making um, video feedback, like 80% of my one-on-one meetings with people. Uh, It used to be, the opposite way. Mm-hmm. We used to spend a lot of time talking about cases and conceptualizing cases. And it's still valuable to some extent, but it's such a, I think you used this analogy before, this game of telephone. 
they're seeing the client, they're interpreting things through their eyes. Mm. They're then telling you about it days later, which is another layer. Then you're interpreting what they're saying and making an image of your head of what's going on and telling them what to do. They're interpreting what you're telling them to do, which is another layer and what you mean by that. And then they're presenting that days later, maybe a week later to that same client. And in that whole chain, um, it's probably lost, yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what was going on to some extent. Mm-hmm. So I want 80% to be like actually going into those moments of recording, practicing, going over moments in treatment, which means, uh, you know, working on having the things like video capabilities, uh, you know, in, in our rooms with mm-hmm. client consent, if they're open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and starting to have trainees create a daily or multiple times a week practice of working with that material in a certain way, in an intentional way. So I think I think that's a big part uh, of the future mm-hmm. of where we could head. I think then making that more generalizable and reaching as many people as possible. And obviously, part of this podcast is in line with that goal. That you know the the trainees who are in the spot I was in my postdoc year, where you got good intentions, you came into the field for the right reasons, you're able to work hard, and you know you can work hard. It's just everything you're doing that you're told to do isn't giving you the effect that you're looking for. You just need to be like, what do I do to actually get better? Just tell me what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, that, it's those people that I think we need to drive in more and more. And, uh, you know, we're, we're here in the bunker and I, I'm hearing we're getting shelled out there with some, uh, you know, the bombs are hitting and we're going to have to pull out and get, you know, get back to the front lines. But an, an, another additional kind of way of thinking about this um, Riz, as you continue to develop the program, is you can't really separate your mental health from your physical health. So, um, you know, if we're putting crap into our bodies, including pharmaceuticals, um, chemicals, food, you know, to not think that doesn't impact on how we feel and our health, you know, is, is you know, dangerously naive. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> to not incorporate, you know, real important lifestyle changes into, you know, how you live. Like, there's no way you're going to feel good, you know, if you're not sleeping, you're hiding in your room, you know, you're on your social media all the time, you know, you're interacting with the world through a screen, you know, your diet's poor, uh, you know, you don't have a life purpose or, or meaning, and, 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 there's, and there's nothing that's set up in your way of coping that, you know, leads you to kind of like build resiliency and overcome challenges so you can have the things that are really important in life. And, you know, whether that's love or that's friendship and, or, you know, that's meaningful work and purpose and, you know, safety and stability, you know, I'm done, you know, with kind of separating the mental from the physical. I'm done with the medical model of, 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 of mental illness and I'm done with the overprescribing of, um, you know, dangerous psychiatric medications, especially to relatively, you know, to really healthy people. So we're destroying their health until we start really understanding, communicating and talking about how that needs to be implemented in the sound behavioral treatment. We're still going to be far, still far off from what people actually need. Dr. Ahmad, Riz, thank you so much for being in here today. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. You guys complete me as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Riz. <laughs> Thanks. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, 
and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.